Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 79. Last week, I worked my way through the next couple of chapters in Exodus, beginning at the end of Chapter 23 and making it all the way to Chapter 25. In these passages, there are a bunch of instructions from God that get really specific on how the ancient Israelites were to worship Him. And embedded in these were two concepts I dove deeply into, acacia wood and onyx stones. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Which gets me to the next part of chapter 25, the Ark of the Covenant, a topic so interesting I'll spend at least two episodes covering. And with that, let's get started. The Ark of the Covenant is sometimes but rarely referred to as the Ark of the Testimony. And despite my upbringing, I was introduced to it by Steven Spielberg. It's a bit of speculation, but I think a fairly safe assumption that millions in my generation learned of it in a similar fashion. And the picture that Mr. Spielberg drew, at least the physical representation of the Ark, was really accurate, as far as we know. Of course, being the esteemed movie maker that he is, he would get the details right. The text of Exodus provides the really detailed description that he relied upon, beginning in Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. It shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Pausing for a second. A cubit was based on the length of the arm, hand, and fingers from the elbow to the fingertips, estimated at about 18 inches or 46 centimeters. This makes the arc about 52 inches long by 31 inches wide by 31 inches tall. For my metric denominated listeners, this is about 131 centimeters long by 79 centimeters wide by 79 centimeters tall. And with those dimensions, I went searching for a modern analog. The closest I could find was a relatively small house-sized refrigerator, albeit in slightly different proportions. Larger than a dorm fridge, smaller than a full size. Unpausing. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make a molding of gold upon it all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, four rings on one side of it and four rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark by which to carry the ark. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the covenant that I shall give you. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Pausing again for a second. In the footnotes of some translations, it's noted that covenant can be alternately translated as treaty or testimony. So it could be the Ark of the Treaty or the Ark of the Testimony. Also, mercy seat could be translated as the cover. Unpausing. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold, and you shall make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end, 
and the other cherub at the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat ye shall make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be turned towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the covenant. I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites. End quote. So, it was acacia wood, overlaid with gold, the top, really a cover, sometimes called the mercy seat, was built in a similar fashion, except the mercy seat was to have two golden cherubim on each end, facing each other. The cherubim were not made of carved wood overlaid with gold. Instead, according to Exodus, they were made of solid metal, likely gold, hammered into the shape of the angel. So, each is sculpture placed on top of the gold lid. It was between these two pieces that God would appear. On each of the four corners was a gold ring, through which the wood pole would pass. The wood pole used in its transport. And it's thought that the poles, once inserted for the first time, were never to be removed. So, the ark would end up holding the stone tablets onto which were written the Ten Commandments. Hebrews chapter 9 would state that in addition to this, the ark contained a golden urn holding manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Hebrews also claimed that the top was carved with what were called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Keep in mind that Hebrews was written over 1,000 years after the ark was built. Also note that the references to the contents were in the past tense. Curious. Of course, the Israelites built the ark according to the specs given to them. And after Moses came back from his forty days and nights on Sinai, at least according to Exodus chapter 31, Moses told Bezuel, or Aholiab, to build the ark, just as God had instructed him to do so. But in Deuteronomy, in chapter 10, the ark is said to have been built specifically by Moses himself, without reference to Bezuel, or Aholiab. How to Reconcile likely a case of the text giving all the credit to the leader for the accomplishments of the staff. When not on the move, the ark would reside in the tabernacle. When in transport, it was covered by a blue cloth and animal hide, always kept from view. And no one would touch it, with the weight being borne by the acacia wood poles. It's thought that as they moved through the desert, the ark was out front, usually about 2,000 cubits, so half a mile, or 800 meters, ahead of the marching army. When they came to the next stopping point, the acacia wood poles were then used to hold the ark off the ground. After Moses' death, when the people were being led by Joshua and arrived on the banks of the Jordan River, at the edge of the promised land of Canaan, the ark was still being carried in the front. In this position, as its porters entered the river, the flowing water ceased, a smaller-scale version of the crossing of the Red Sea. The priest carrying the ark paused in the middle of the now-dry river 
as the entire populace passed. After everyone was through, the priests restarted and exited the riverbed. Upon doing so, the river began to flow again. To memorialize this, twelve stones were taken from the riverbed, from the spot where the porters paused, and placed on the river bank. Later in the history, during the Battle of Jericho, the Ark was carried around the city once a day for seven days. This time, it appears that warriors, at least some of the contingent, along with seven priests, were in front of the vessel. The priests were blowing their ram's horn trumpets. On the seventh consecutive day, after the seventh lap of the city, when the seven priests sounded their seven trumpets, the walls came tumbling down, and the Israelites took the city. The ark would make an appearance later, after Israel's defeat at Ai, with Joshua weeping before it. In another place in the text, Joshua would read the law to the people, perhaps during a sabbatical, near Mount Gerazim in Ebal, while standing beside the ark. Later, Aaron's grandson, via his son Eli, a lad known as Phineas, would take care of the ark when it was located at Bethel. Note that in the King James, the word Bethel is translated as the house of the Lord, which makes sense, since the ark was there. It would later be moved to Shiloh, which was about 10 miles or 16 kilometers north of Bethel. This was during the prophet Samuel's apprenticeship. At the time, it was still being overseen by Phineas, this time with the assistance of his brother Hophni. Backing up in the history a bit, in another part of the text, in the book of Judges, in chapter 20, the tribes of Israelites were formulating a plan of attack on their fellow Hebrews, the Benjaminites. This was after a concubine of a Levite was raped and abused by members of the tribe of Benjamin. She later died. The conflict would come to be known as the Battle of Gabeah. Here, the Benjaminites would meet the wrath of the other tribes. As part of their planning process leading up to the battle, the leaders of the remaining tribes consulted the Ark. In my mind, this simply means they prayed to God in front of it. The text reads, And the Israelites inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our kinsfolks, the Benjaminites, or shall we desist? The Lord answered, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. End quote. Not long after that, in their not quite so infinite wisdom, the leaders of Israel made the short-sighted tactical decision to take the ark with them to the battle in their fight against the Philistines, Probably quite unexpectedly, they were defeated by their geographic rivals at the Battle of Ebenezer. During the fight, the Israelites lost some 30,000 men, which certainly shouldn't be minimized. Having said that, they lost something far more valuable. The Philistines captured the Ark. Cue the ominous music. The battle also saw the deaths of the Levite priest Hophni and Phinehas, the ark's caretakers, with the dwelling place of God literally seized over their dead bodies. The enormity of this loss was quickly evident. 
a running messenger relayed the news to the priest at Shiloh. This time, the dead brother's father, Eli, son of the first priest, Aaron, and therefore nephew of Moses. Upon hearing of the cataclysm, Eli fell dead. His unnamed daughter-in-law, wife of his son Phineas, then stated the obvious, but still quoted some 3,000 years later. The glory has departed Israel, with the glory being the ark. She was pregnant with Ichabod at the time, and would die herself in childbirth. Oh, how the fortunes had changed. The Philistines would take the ark to several cities in their territory, and at each, with the arrival of the ark, bad luck would follow. Actually, not really luck likely more of divine retribution. When the vessel was taken to the Philistine city of Ashdod, located in the modern country of Israel on the Mediterranean coast, it was placed in their temple for their deity Dagon. The day after arriving, when the temple was opened in the morning, the idol representing Dagon was found laid flat before the ark. That day, the priest put the idol back in its usual spot, upright again. The next morning, the same idol was found lying before the ark again, this time broken into many pieces. Their bad luck, though, wasn't done. The rumor mill was running at full bore, and the people were afraid. What had God wrought? Well, he next wrought a plague of mice. Other Philistine cities were not spared. The ark was then moved to Gath and Ekron, both located in the central part of modern Israel, and plagues shortly followed. They should have consulted with the Egyptians. The Philistines would keep the ark for only seven months, quickly deciding that the war prize gained was not worth its carrying cost. After these few months, their soothsayers advised to return the ark to the Israelites. Good call. When they did, they also sent a little golden art of their own. Images of the boils and mice, essentially artwork depicting plagues. Curious choice. The Philistines took the ark to a field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite. This is located near the modern city of Beth Shemesh, a dozen or so miles, so about 20 kilometers to the west, southwest of Jerusalem. At that time, the residents were harvesting grain. These same residents would offer up sacrifices and other burnt offerings. But all wasn't well. Out of curiosity, some of the men of Beth Shemesh looked upon the ark, apparently forgetting the instructions from God some many years before. And God was still the God of the Old Testament, and you had to take what he said seriously. As a punishment for their looking upon the ark, either 70 or 50,070 were struck dead. And obviously, there's a great gulf between these two numbers. Of the three translations I use, the New Revised Standard and the NIV both say 70, but note that the Hebrew is unclear and could mean 50,000 more. The King James Version says 50,070. All of this can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 6. With the deaths of the men, the locals asked the priest located at Kiriath Giorum, sometimes called Baal Judah, to remove the ark. It was then taken to the house of a man named 
Abinadab. His son, Eliezer, was properly sanctified and put in charge of its upkeep. It would remain in this city for the next 20 years. Later, when Saul was king, he took the ark with him to fight the Philistines, but he did not consult with it prior to the battle, maybe being in too much of a hurry. In 1 Chronicles, in chapter 13, we're told that the Israelites, to their detriment, had apparently forgotten this habit, not, and now this is their own words, inquiring of it during the reign of Saul. Of course, after King Saul was King David, with a small speed bump between the two, a speed bump named Ishbosheth. When David first took the throne, he had the ark moved from Kiriath Gioram to Jerusalem, and the journey between the two cities does merit a small mention. Instead of being borne by priests slash porters carrying it with acacia poles, it was loaded on a cart moving at the pace of oxen. As you likely can imagine, the roads in the era were not particularly smooth. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we learn that after a bump in the road, the ark began to teeter, perhaps on the verge of falling out of the cart. One of the drivers, named Uzzah, reached out and grabbed the ark to steady it. He was immediately struck dead. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. The rules were simple and non-negotiable. The place where this happened was later named Perez Uzzah, which translates to outburst against Uzzah. Upon hearing this, King David was a bit concerned and afraid. He had the ark placed into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, where it would remain for three months while David figured out what to do. It's unclear and the subject of debate if Odeb-Edom was a Levite or a Philistine. Regardless, during that time, God blessed Obed-Edom, likely since the ark was afforded the proper respect while in his house. This mitigated David's concerns, but his respect for the golden chest remained. David then had Levites, so priests, bring the ark to Mount Zion, just outside of Jerusalem. They were only six steps into their journey when David sacrificed an ox and a fatling, but he wasn't done trying to curry the favor of God. As seen in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David danced before the Lord with all his might while wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. But not all were pleased with David's show, though. His wife, Mikael, who was also the dead King Saul's daughter, from her window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. The story isn't quite done. The text continues. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. 
End quote. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, his wife and the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me in the place of your father and all his household to appoint me as the prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. End quote. With the ark now in Jerusalem, the Levites were once again appointed as the priests to attend to it. David had initially intended to build a temple to house the ark, but God advised him against it. Instead, it would be kept in a tent, similar to when the Israelites wandered through the desert. Later in his reign, David would attack the Ammonites and lay siege to their city of Rabbah. During this campaign, he took the ark with him. Also, when his third son, Absalom, attempted to instigate what essentially amounted to a coup, David, accompanied by a few others, fled, taking the ark with them. But before the conflict was resolved, David had a priest, Zadok, take the ark back to Jerusalem. Of course, David would eventually defeat his rebelling son. And there will be much more on this when I get to that part of the Old Testament. After David was King Solomon, when he took the throne, a priest named Abithor was the ark's caretaker. But Abithor had supported Solomon's rival for the throne. So, after becoming king, Solomon removed Abithor from his post. But Solomon let him live, owing to the priest's previous faithful service to the ark. Later, Solomon would dream that God would provide him with wisdom, after which he worshipped before the ark. He then had a temple built in Jerusalem. In the temple, a special room to house the ark was built, called the Kodesh Hokoashim, which translates to the Holy of Holies. When the temple was completed, then dedicated, the ark, still containing the Ten Commandments, was placed in this room by the Levite priest. When they emerged, quoting from 1 Kings chapter 8, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of God filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. End quote. Finally, later in his reign, King Solomon married a daughter of the reigning Egyptian pharaoh. But despite being his wife, well, one of some 700 wives, she wasn't allowed to live near Mount Zion, where the temple, and therefore the ark, was kept. Since this was considered the holiest site in ancient Israel, the city itself had been consecrated, and she wasn't allowed in. Several generations and a couple of hundred years later, Judah was ruled by King Josiah. Apparently in the years between Solomon and Josiah, the ark was removed from the temple. 
Then, in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, we see where Josiah had the ark returned to Solomon's temple. And that's a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll continue through the history of the Ark of the Covenant. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.